Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens, the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. You know, we live in an amazing era of storytelling. Uh, Just last night, my wife and I saw the kind of conclusion to the 007, uh, long narrative arc of that, and that's just one example. But when you think of great stories in our culture, it's hard not to think of Pixar and all the amazing Pixar movies over the last 20 or 25 years. You think of Toy Story and all its sequels. You think of Finding Nemo. The Incredibles, Ratatouille, if you ever saw that one. Our family was eating at a French restaurant recently, and one of my kids actually ordered Ratatouille. That's the influence of Pixar on them at that level. Uh, Up, if you ever saw that, and that sequence where the couple ages throughout the course of their lives, it makes me weep every time. And one of my very favorites, Inside Out, where it really gives this pretty sophisticated understanding of thinking about emotions and how those relate to who we are. Well, last Christmas... Pixar came out with another movie called Soul, and it's not my favorite. It's very good. It's not not my very favorite. I don't think it's quite as profound as Inside Out, but it's dealing with the issue of who we are on the inside and even kind of life after death and determinism and, and personality and those kind of things. And without spoiling it, the basic plot is that you have a... a jazz pianist who want, who never quite made it as a jazz musician, so he's stuck as a middle school band teacher, and he's just not satisfied. If you're a middle school band teacher, I hope you're satisfied, but he wasn't anyways. And then he has an accident, and he finds his soul, his inner person, is traveling on this escalator up to what's called the great beyond. But he's not ready to go there, so he jumps off, and he finds himself in what's called the great before, and he's this soul, and there's all these pre-embodied souls there who are waiting to find their spark and kind of get their personality developed, and then they will come to the earth and enter into a body, all right? So that's the basic idea. Now, I know the movie is not trying to make you know definitive neurological or psychological or theological statements, but it is very interesting how I think what they're depicting there is probably what most people would think about the soul, that there's this thing inside of us that is the real us, the real me is the inside, and that I'm just temporarily in some kind of physical body. And I think if we were all to sit down and kind of talk about what's the soul and how does it relate to the body, I think many of us, Christians and non-Christians, would probably say something pretty similar to that, that there's this, the real person is the person inside of me, and the body is just this temporary thing I'm in. Now, part of the problem is, is that I don't think the church has done a very good job really being clear on this either. 
And part of that problem comes from that when you look in the Bible, the Bible has a bunch of words, Hebrew words in the Old Testament and Greek words in the New Testament that get translated into some words that we use like soul and heart and mind and body, but they don't always work out exactly. And so sometimes what can happen when we're reading the Bible is that we assume what we mean by a word like soul is what the Bible means by a word, but it may not be. And in fact, when we look at the descriptions of how the Bible describes what it means to be human, what we see is that they're more poetic than technical. So for example, in one case, they might say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Another place it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And another place says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Obviously, they're more poetic images. They're not really giving us like a scientific depiction of what the human is. Well, today, as we continue our series that we're calling Sacred in Genesis 1 to 2, we have an opportunity really in this text to lean into this question of what it really means to be human and particular, particularly what it means to be an embodied human. What does God say about having a body? Over the last several weeks, Pastor and Kevin and I have been going through Genesis 1 and 2, and we've seen amazing things, how God is a father before all else, the beauty of his creation, what it means to be in the image of God, the importance of rest. And all of that covers Genesis 1 into Genesis 2, verse 3, and today we're picking it up in Genesis 2-4. If you have a Bible, you can look there with me. You can pull it up in your phone. We'll put some of the verses up there as well. But I, I need you to understand something really cool that happens in the way Genesis works. So Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 gives you this like 25,000 foot overview of the creation. It's like seeing it in its entirety. And then something happens in 2-4. It's like the camera feed switches from this high level view down to kind of a drone level like a low-level view, and it goes back a little bit to day six and shows us that actually things happened in a little bit more complicated way. So Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 gives us the big truth of what happened. Then we go backwards and see, you know what? There's some, there's some kind of stages to what happened, particularly in day six. So let me look, look with me at day uh, think, think of what happens in 2, 4 to 6. If you think back to day 6, what you saw was that God created the vegetation and everything was flourishing. But then we see this little bit more narrow view of it. Look back with me at Genesis 2, 4 through 6. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made them, no, now no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, nor had any plant of the field sprouted. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground, but springs welled up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. You see, back in Genesis 1, we're just told that there is, you know, vegetation that's flourishing. Now in Genesis 2, it goes backward and says, you know what, actually, how that happened was over time. At first, it was wild, like a jungle or a forest. It was not yet cultivated. And so, too, now we're going to hear that the creation of humanity also developed in, in a couple of stages. So back in chapter one, look back with me in Genesis one, we'll put it on the screen here for you. It says, God said, let us make man in our own image 
after our likeness to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth itself and every creature that crawls upon it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So that's the overview. But now in chapter two, Genesis two, what we get is it turns out that that creation of humanity as both male and female happened in two stages. First, God created a male and then when it turns out that it's not good for him to be alone, can I get a witness? It turns out then he needs to create someone who he needs a lot, right? A female. And so that creation account that's in Genesis 1 gives us the overview. Genesis 2 gives us a kind of an unpacking of how those stages happen. So look at Genesis 2, 7. We get the record of the first male. It says, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. And that's what we want to concentrate on today. What we're going to say actually applies to the creation of both males and females, but we're going to use verse 7 here to talk about this image of what it means to be human as made by God. In a couple of weeks, Pastor Kevin will come back and we'll talk about marriage and male and female relationships. And so we'll come back to those verses later. But for now, we want to talk about this question. What does it really mean to be human according to this creation account? Is soul, Pixar's soul, right? That we have this disembodied pre-existence and then we just enter into a body? Is Buddhism right? That there is no soul, it's just energy that's kind of transferred and translated and reincarnated? Is, it, is Confucianism right? That there's a part of you that's a soul that then floats away at your physical death? What we're gonna see is what does the Bible say about what it means to be both body and soul? Now, I've really enjoyed this week thinking a ton about this, reading a bunch of books, thinking a lot about it for several weeks now. And what I've come up with here are five things I wanna say, and I'll get through them as quickly as I can. Five biblical truths about being a sacred embodied being, okay? So five biblical truths about being a sacred embodied being. Here's the first one. Our bodies are an essential part of what it means to be a human creature. You see, here in Genesis, we learn something absolutely crucial. To be human is to be embodied. We are both earth and breath. In Hebrew, there's a play on words about with the name earth and Adam's name that we can just kind of bring into English this way, something like God formed the earthling from the earth, right? It's this play on words that, that our very name as being human is built into the word for earth. And Genesis 1, 2, Genesis 1 and 2 shows us that God is this artisan. He's not just manufacturing thing like a machine. He's an artisan who is thoughtfully and carefully and with delight crafting his world and he sees that it's good. And now here as Psalm 139 tells us, humans are fearfully and wonderfully made. And what Genesis 1 told us, we saw a couple weeks ago, is that humans alone are made in God's image. And we're gonna, I'm gonna talk about this a little bit next week as well. But the basic idea is that to be stamped with God's image is to be kingly and queenly and to have this amazing worth that God has set humanity on the earth to represent who he is and to rule and reign in a good way, in a positive and constructive way, and that's what we'll talk about next week, 
over all of his creation. And this language in Genesis 2 of God breathing his own life into these formed creatures is, the, is another way of talking about the image of God. That humans, you see, are the physical representation of God's presence in God's physical creation. God himself is spirit, and he creates a physical world. And then at the apex of creation, the crowning achievement, there's one creature that he puts his own image on. It's like a signet ring stamped into, into hot wax. And then he breathes his own life into that, those creatures, the first humans, and says, you represent me on the world. Of course, we're going to see in Genesis 3 that we blow it and do not do that well. And then we'll start the whole process of redemption. But this is the basic idea. And so I think we can sum it up this way, that to be human then is simultaneously to be both material, physical, and immaterial, both body and spirit. And you really can't compartmentalize these. You see, what the biblical text tells us, you have to really pay attention to the order it tells us. It's not that there's this soul out there called Adam that God created, and then he, he looks around and he puts him into a body. It's the opposite way. It's that God forms out of the material world that he's created this body, and then he breathes his own life into it. So as one theologian has said, it's not that we are incarnated souls. We're not souls that have taken on flesh. We are actually animated bodies. We are bodies. That's who we are. God has made us as physical creatures that then he breathes his own life into. We're not souls that are randomly assigned to a physical body with the real me being the inside and the body's just temporary or, or insignificant. Who we are is an embodied creature as made by God. God didn't have this bubble of identity or this, you know, kind of semi-translucent thing that is the soul and then put it into a body. We are physical in our very nature. And of course, our bodies determine a lot of who we are, our gender, our race, our ethnicity, our size, our attractiveness, our skills, our health, our metabolism. We are our bodies. We're not only our bodies, of course, but we are our bodies. You know, as parents, a lot of times we tell our children, you can be whatever you want to be. Well, that's kind of true, but it's actually mostly not. I'm not going to be a professional NBA player, right? There's a million other things I'm not going to be because I am limited to my own physicality and space and place and time, right? I'm not going to be the emperor of Rome, okay? There's a million things I'm not going to be because I'm an embodied creature made by God. And, you know, you really can't separate. This is the part of the mystery of being a human is that, especially the more we get to know about the human body, it's not like we have greater clarity. We have more questions. Like, what is the relationship between hormones and emotions? Like the physical hormones and and emotions. There's, you really can't separate them. What's the relationship between the brain and the mind? <laughs> I mean, these are, the, these are the questions that you really cannot get to the bottom of because we are embodied creatures. And as sometimes the word we use for it is that we are psychosomatic wholes. That is, we're soul and body together, and you really can't separate them. That's what it means to be a human. 
And that leads to the second point. Often, we in our society overvalue our bodies. Now, we humans, to be human is to be extreme. We tend to have one view over here, and then in our own lives, maybe we swing all the way to another view, or we have very polarized views. That's a human tendency. And for some people, we really come over here on the body side and way overvalue our bodies. To get at that, let me ask you a question. If you could change one thing about your body, what would it be and why? If you could change one thing about your body, what would it be and why? Now, I'm not asking you to shout out answers, <laughs> okay? Because if you really need to, go ahead or maybe talk to me afterwards. But <laughs> I ask this question because I bet if you're honest with that question, you're going to feel some shame. You're going to feel some vulnerability. You're going to feel some embarrassment, maybe about some lack or some limit, or some scar, some size issue, you know, whatever it is. And part of that is just a function of the fall. Part of that is just part of being broken, a real embodied person in a broken world. But part of that, I think, is that especially in our society, we've created this particular norm of what is beautiful and are saying that is what it is and anything else that doesn't meet that exactly makes you feel shame. And that's an example of overvaluing our bodies. For example, I got these stats from the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. In 2019, there were 18 point, in America alone, 18.4 million, recon, not reconstructive, but cosmetic surgical procedures occurred. Not reconstructive, that's a different set of, of um, stats. But just cosmetic surgery, and there's, I'm not shaming anybody who's partaken of this, this is not the point. The point is that we put a lot of value on our bodies and our appearance, and that's not all bad, but the fact of how much time and money we spend on cosmetic surgery shows something about what our society really values. The number one is nose reshaping, and it goes on down the list. Our obsession with always looking beautiful and always comparing ourselves often leads, does it lead to happiness? No, it often leads to, to self-harm, with obsession, with two very unhealthy things like anorexia and bulimia, to excessive exercise and various kinds of surgery, et cetera. And for many people, it often, the shame is so great, it leads to blaming God and, and, and anger at your body. Many people, probably most people, are unsatisfied with their bodies because we have overvalued them. And if you're not currently unsatisfied, just wait. <laughs> Maybe you're like at peak human performance and you're, and, you're doing, and you're doing great. You're exercising, you're eating right, which are all good things to do. We'll come back to that. But it does not matter how much you exercise and how well you eat, it will catch up with you. Age, no matter what. I have a beloved aunt and uncle that are 93 and 95. You'd think they were 65. They're super healthy, lively, intelligent, kind-hearted kind people. They will die too. 
it catches up with everyone. Another thing that makes me think about this is how much we value medical doctors in our society. And we have several doctors in the church, and I love you, and I'm thankful for you. And we are all thankful because especially in the last 50 years, 75 years, the technology that we have developed is amazing. The knowledge of the human body is amazing. The things we can do, I'm so thankful. There's no place I'd rather live than in America America and with the medical things we have available to us. And that's great. If it sounds like there's a big butt coming, there is. But it is very interesting that just in the last 50 years or so, there's been a shift in society that we value medical doctors in terms of their, we see them as the most important people and often pay them at the higher end. Why is that? Because that's a shift. That was not the case even 50 years ago, I'd suggest to you, maybe 75 years ago. I think it's because we now have, through technology and medicine and knowledge, we have the ability to avoid a lot of pain and to extend life, which is great. But I think there's something underneath that as well, which is this sort of overvaluing of the body as if that's all that really matters, is that we avoid pain and we extend life. We can also do the opposite, though. And this is the third point. We can undervalue our bodies. And we see this in a lot of ways. Again, the, the rhetoric that you see with gender dysphoria and other issues that my, the real person is the inside person and my body doesn't matter. Well, that idea is actually an ancient one. I mean, there are old ancient philosophies and religions that said the same thing, your body doesn't matter. And it's a very modern thing as well. Maybe some of you saw Ready Player One or read the book, which is much better than the movie, of course. In Ready Player One, you have this vision of not too far in the future where people live almost their entire lives virtually, right? And the attraction of that world in the oasis, it's called, is that you can be whoever you want to be. You can be any gender you want. You can be any race you want. You can have any bone structure you want. You can be an ogre or an elf if you want. You can be a flashing cube if you want. You can be whatever you want because who you are as a body doesn't really matter. I also think of maybe some of you saw Amazon Prime show a couple years ago, Upload, this sort of idea that technology get to the point where they could upload all your memories, basically your consciousness. So depending on how much money you have, you get to buy a higher level of sort of post-mortem existence. Is that who we are? Are we just our disembodied memories and consciences? Not only is this not what the Bible says, that we're formed as human physical creatures with God breathing life into us, it's also not what just real life experience shows. I mean, if you see me in my car, you will see that I am regularly shredding guitar solos, heavy metal guitar solos. But I'm not a shredding heavy metal guitarist because I can't do that with my body. I mean, okay, they're a little slow, right? I'm not that because that requires my body to be able to do that. I'm not just what I imagine myself to be. We also think, as, as Sam Albury points out, this remarkable thing, that do you know that there are now professional cuddling services, right, for people 
who don't get enough physical touch, maybe busy professionals in a big city, not, not sexual, just the importance of physical touch. You can pay to have someone hug you, basically, and pat your head or something. I'm not sure what else they do. Now, I'm not making fun of this. I'm saying this shows something real about our human need. And one of the slogans of these companies, which is very profound, I think, says, in our society, we're sex-obsessed but touch-deprived. I think that's really true. I think how much of our society is driven by sexuality, but really what we long for is true, loving touch from another human. Or you think about how the Bible describes the, the way that our bodies and our souls are intertwined in a way that's, in, that's inextricable. Think of Psalm 32, where David is talking about what he experienced in his body when he had sinned greatly. Psalm 32 says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and whose spirit there's no deceit. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. and You forgave the guilt of my sin. The point is that what, you know, what happens in our souls is manifested in our bodies. You really can't separate those. And how many of you have ever been you know, anxious about something or full of guilt or shame, and you just feel it in your body. That is who you are. That is who we are. This, we shouldn't undervalue the body. This is how God has made us. And God has made our bodies in all different kinds of ways. And many of you, I think most of us are probably frustrated with our bodies at points, not only limits, but cancers and sources of shame and embarrassment, addictions. All these things are frustrations we have with our body, but don't let that make you undervalue how God has made the body because it is amazing. I love this list that, that uh, Pastor Jonah, Pastor one of our sister churches put together and sent me. Here's just a few like quick stats on what are the amazingness of our human body so we shouldn't undervalue it. We have around 4,000 taste buds on our tongues, each with around 100 cells to help you taste. Your body is replacing every bit of skin on your entire body every month. Don't think about where all that skin's going. But your heart beats 100,000 times a day and moves 2,000 gallons of blood through your system. By age 70, your heart will have beat about 2.5 billion times. Your body consists of over 600 different muscles. And every second, your body is producing 25 million new cells. In 15 seconds, your body makes more cells than there are Americans, right? And all these parts are moving together. This is how God has made you fellow human. This is the amazingness of your body. Don't undervalue it, even if you don't like it. And that leads to our fourth point, that what we do with our bodies shapes who we are and who we will become. What we do with our bodies shapes who we are and who we will become. This is absolutely crucial and comes from the last point. The way God has made us as embodied beings, our habits, the things we deliberately do with our bodies by choice that then become routine, 
those are not insignificant. Our habits shape and form and mold us to be a certain kind of person. They, our habits shape and form us to see the world and experience the world in certain ways. This is obvious when we put substances in our body, many of which are good things like caffeine, right? Ketones, alcohol, mushrooms, CBD, THC, whatever you put in your body, that obviously affects how you view the world, right? But it also, at a more natural level, have you ever seen the brain scans of, of the difference between a brain before you take a walk and after you take a walk? They're remarkable. Just by getting outside and taking a walk or exercising, the different parts of your brain fire in different ways and light up in different ways, and you experience the world differently. Some of you have exercised, and that's a great feeling, right? Maybe some of you exercise say, that's a horrible feeling, but ideally, it's supposed to be a great feeling after you exercise because what you do with your body does affect how you experience the world. I think the most obvious example of this is, have you ever thought about how often God commands his people, both Old and New Testaments, to physically do things with their bodies so that they can understand the world in a certain way? Have you thought about that? How often God tells people, if we're just souls, why does it matter that he tells us to do a bunch of physical things? Like in the Old Testament, the Passover meal, where they, through remembrance, re-celebrate this event that remembers the Exodus and all the other feasts and festivals. The Bible doesn't just say, hey, just remember that, think about it, don't worry about it, you're good. It's an actually enactment of what you do because the doing of it with your physical body shapes your sensibilities and your thinking or the Lord's Supper, right? We don't just say, hey, remember that thing's there. Remember Jesus loves you. We actually partake of it. We put the bread into our physical mouths and we taste it with our physical tongues and they go down our esophagi or whatever the plural of esophagus is and it goes down into our stomachs. And we take the wine, the grape juice, and we partake of it. All those physical activities are commanded so that we will see the world and know the world in a different way than if we were just using our minds. Baptism, other feasts and festivals. Sunday morning, our musicians do a great job, whether you've ever paid attention to it or not, of leading us through steps of a call to worship, of a singing of praise where we use our vocal cords and our tongues and our teeth and our eyes through confession, through receiving assurance, through greeting one another, all those through receiving a benediction, all of those physical activities matter because they shape who we are. Or you can think of non-religious non ones or other, other kind of ways that humans use embodied activities, intentional embodied activities. Think about a funeral. What's the point of a funeral? Why go through these physical activities of gathering, maybe dressing a certain way, gathering in a certain place, singing, speaking words of remembrance, gathering at a graveside? Why do those physical activities? Because the way God has designed us as embodied creatures, it is through going through those physical activities that we begin the healing process. It's not enough to just think about it. 
the, the actual physical activities are an essential part because we're embodied creatures of learning to see and learning to close a chapter and learning to move on. Or think about a wedding. <laughs> I performed a couple of weddings recently and, you know, really all that matters for legal and insurance reasons, right? And tax reasons is that you've signed the paper at the end, right? That's technically all that matters. But if that's all a wedding were, it would be, you'd miss so much. All the physical things we do with a wedding, the bride coming down the aisle, the men standing up here, don't lock your knees, you know, the, all, all, the, the officiant and the exchange of rings, the speaking of vows, all those things are beautiful, right? Believe me, it'd be way easier not to do all those things. Having witnessed a couple weddings recently because I was involved in them, it's very stressful and very expensive. I said to one of my daughters at the last wedding, I will write you a check for $10,000 right now if you will elope, right? <laughs> because it would be way easier. Now, I was mostly joking because I'm going to... I'm going to be weeping, of course. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to fall down when my daughters get married, probably. But the, you know, the, the actual going through the motions is really significant because God's made us as embodied people, and those activities shape us in profound ways. Some of you may have heard in recent years, last few decades, there's been a, a really significant change that's been happening a lot of a lot of therapy and counseling and even medical practices, a lot of which it was, has the impetus behind a really famous book now called The Body Keeps the Score. And it comes uh, from this psychologist, psychotherapist, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who was working with Vietnam vets who were very traumatized. And this is before we had kind of the language of PTSD. And he found that just talk therapy just using the mind to try to deal with these intense experiences that they had in war was not sufficient because adrenaline was, was so strong and can traumatize the brain and the other parts of the body so greatly that other things like fireworks or you know, even various other situations could make that same physical experience happen. And then that just wrecks the brain and the relationships and the mind and, and the psychology as well. And so what they found is that it wasn't enough to just talk through things. They needed to start using their bodies in certain ways to find healing, including journaling and a lot of times community theater. Many people have found a lot of healing through being involved in, in theater and other kinds of acting. And then one of the most crazy things, one of the single craziest things that if you've never heard of this, what I'm about to say is gonna sound like sorcery to you, but I have personally known several people who have been greatly positively impacted by this. And it is a technique that's developed called EMDR, Eye Movement Desensitization or Reprocessing, by which traumatized people, by using a physical activity concerning their eyes that connects to certain parts of their brain, can actually, for the first time, begin to find healing from traumatic situations. I had a good friend, and this is one of a million of examples, who's witnessed her husband in a very bad accident and was just traumatized by it, and she could not shake it. It wasn't enough to just kind of go to talk therapy, as good as that is. She needed some kind of physical way. And this is one technique that is, I know it sounds crazy, but I've known many, many people that have been affected by it very positively. And the point is, it's because that's how God has made us. 
that our bodies are absolutely essential and what we do with them affects us. So any kind of counseling, Christian or non-Christian, that only deals with the mind, that isn't aware of the biology and aware of other aspects of who we are is, is not understanding the complexity of who we are as embodied people. And this leads to our fifth and final point. We'll end with this here. Our bodies are part of our eternal state. <laughs> this is so amazing. The, the beauty and goodness of God and his wisdom. When God brings to his completion the way that he wants to restore a relationship between God and humanity that's gonna be lost in Genesis 3, when it comes to its final moment, what happens? It is all based on physical body. The three most important things that happen in human history, the incarnation, I think the transfiguration, this picture of Jesus, and then the resurrection are all about physical realities. That God comes into the world in a human body. It's not as if, I love what Tom Wright says, it's not as if Jesus just like kind of takes on a body and then once he's done for a little while, he jettisons it like a space shuttle loses its booster rockets. <laughs> That's not the case. God became flesh. He didn't borrow. He didn't just take on a Christmas sweater that he takes off at Christmas after we stopped talking about the incarnation. He became a physical body to redeem us. And the hope of Christianity is that our greatest enemy, which we feel, which is a physical enemy, which is death, that that death, that physical enemy will be defeated. And the Christian hope is that the Christians will be resurrected in a physical body to new life, in a new creation. <laughs> that is amazing. Right? The whole story from the beginning, from Genesis, from 2-7, when the first human is created, finds its consummation in a physical new Genesis, a new creation through the physical incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> that is beautiful. That is powerful. And that, of all things, testifies to the essentiality of being embodied creatures. The first Adam and Eve were embodied creatures. The second Adam, Jesus, was embodied as well. So your body disappointments, your frustrations, your body breaking down, the things you're embarrassed about about your body, all of those things will be redeemed and transformed. You're not going to get free from your body. You're going to be redeemed and transformed. So, so what? Well, let me finish briefly this way. I'll just say it this way. If you undervalue your body, make a shift. And if you overvalue your body, make a shift. What are some ways that maybe you need to take greater agency, greater responsibility for what you're doing with your body? Not giving yourself over to addictive and compulsive behaviors because those shape who you are. Forming habits that are good. Those shape who you are. Often, you and I can't just wait around for transformation to happen within us. Often, we 
we are transformed by beginning to do what is right and good. It's often in the process of doing that we find healing. What are some ways maybe that you just need to accept that the body you're in is frustrating to you? Maybe it's some illness or sickness and to grieve your limits and losses and be okay with that in the hope of the resurrection. I love that we read Romans 12. I ask Casey to put this back up here again. I think this is the greatest application from Romans 12. You got that, Casey? Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, that is your whole self, not just your mind, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You want to know what it means to worship God? Offer your whole self to him. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is God's will for you. Let me give you this final quote. Humanity is not a disease that needs to be cured or a state of deficiency from which we need to escape. That is our human embodiedness. The spiritual journey is not intended to make us into angels or cherubim or seraphim or gods or some other form of spiritual being. The spiritual journey is intended to help us become all that we are as humans, all that we can be. One of the ways that we distance ourselves from our bodies as by a retreat to the world, sorry, is by a retreat to the world of thoughts and beliefs. Religious spiritualities encourage us when they reduce the spiritual journey to holding correct theology. Correct theology is important. We love truth. But what you do with your bodies as an embodied creature offering your very life to God is what it means to be the people of God. Let me pray as we close. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.